by age 42, many are at least beginning to look at their finances and to think about how to plan for retirement. Today's guest, however, had a different focus in mind. We'll find out more in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. And I am very excited to introduce to you Colette V. Smith. Colette, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Colette, um, you went from being, as you described it, the worst cheerleader as a child to stepping onto the football field at the age of 42 to play organized football in a women's football league to, in January of 2017, becoming the first African-American woman and just the third woman to coach in the national football team. So may I say, first of all, bravo. <laughs> and Thank you. Once again, how pleased I am to have you here. That that was quite a, a bit of a journey. Um, it, you certainly received a lot of coverage as being an NFL coach. What was that like? Well, well two things. First, um, I found out that I was going to, the world found out, and myself included, that I was going to be uh, an NFL coach with the New York Jets with the New York Jets in May of 2017, and um, the the debut I want to say was in July, June, June or July of 2017. Okay, and um, that was quite uh, interesting. I, I mean, that was a huge honor. It, it, it was something that I, I I honestly never dreamt of because how would I? I'm a girl that was not allowed to play football when I was a kid. Um, you know, I'm 49 years old today. And so when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, back in those days, definitely a girl was not allowed to play football. So it was never, I, I never was allowed to have that dream. So it just kind of um, organically happened throughout my life. God was certainly driving this car and, uh, so it, it happened, and I think that was one of the one of the highest points of my life. How were how would how did the team react to you as being African American and a woman? The team being the Jets. Yes, the team was amazing. <laughs> the players were absolutely the greatest, and you know, you, probably a lot of people should understand that I didn't just. Uh, meet the team for the first time when I was their coach, I had been going out there to their practices the previous year. So for uh, a complete season, I was at Jets practices, invited by the head coach um, to come out whenever I wanted to. So any time that I could squeeze some time in to drive all the way out deep in New Jersey, in Florham Park, New Jersey, I would get out there. So I knew the players. They had already seen me from the season before. So it was just, when I came back as their coach, it was very cool to hear them. Instead of saying, hey, Colette, how are you doing? But it was a beautiful thing to have them say, hey, coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Let, let me ask you a question, because before you were there, you did play with the Women's Football League. There's kind of a difference between women playing football and men playing football in terms of how they are thought about, paid, perceived. What's your thought? 
Well, um, you know, when when we talk about a women's league, I always like to make sure we mention that it's a women's professional league. So it isn't just like a group of girls in different cities throughout different states in America saying, hey, let's just get together and play some football. This is serious women's professional football. It is organized to the T's. Every I is dotted. Uh, you know, we have close to a 100 women's professional football teams huh. with our women's pro football leagues. And um, I'm happy to say that there's a brand new league. It's called the WNFC, the Women's Football, the Women's National Football Conference. And uh, it is a group of women like myself that take that don't take no for an answer, that really care about women in football because we get the short end of the stick. Football is probably one of the only sports that gets little to no um, coverage, media coverage, perks, anything like that. And myself and Odessa Jenkins, she is uh, the the COO, the chief operating officer of this new league, she had started this league, and we are taking it to a whole nother level. So right now you're going to have three women's football, pro football leagues. And the WNFC is here to play this game the right way, give uh, excellent product. Not that there wasn't good product before, but it was just things. there's always room for improvement. Okay. And uh, us women that – that really, really care about women's football have started a new league. So I'm happy to say that I'm the director of government and community relations in this brand new women's football league, pro football league, and we have already have 12 teams signed up with us. That and is wonderful. Contracts with Rydell. Rydell is going to be supporting us, and Turner, the Turner Media Company, has taken great interest in us. And so we're making some serious moves here. This is really excellent because up until this point, and I don't know if it will change significantly in the near future, women playing professional football, it's not like they were getting professional football money. Oh, yeah, correct. We don't have any money, actually. Um, When I played pro football for a team here in New York, uh, there was no money for us. We actually had to pay to play, and that should absolutely identify how passionate we are, we women are about football. Tom, you tell me what man is going to say, no, you know what, you don't have to pay me to play football, and you could, you know, have me do football drills every day and run me into the ground and beat my body up, and you don't have to pay me. I don't think there's any man that would do that. I'm saying thinking close to none. I, I agree with you, Dr. Brewer. <laughs> I agree with you. And so women are doing that. If that doesn't tell you how passionate we are about this game, this sport that we love, that we've always been kept out of, but we're still doing it. So the WNFC is going to be doing it the best. We are about excellence. I want to switch gears a little bit, or maybe a lot. You do a lot of work with girls and women working to motivate and build self-esteem. I'd also like to talk with you about your work in fighting against sexual assault 
and domestic violence. You were asked to be an ambassador for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and to be a speaker um, at their conference. If one were to pay attention to some of the myths about who is victimized by domestic violence, it wouldn't be you. You worked in construction. You played football, for goodness sakes. How could you ever have been a victim of domestic violence? It's not possible, right? It is extremely possible, which is very sad, which is very scary. It, it, in fact, it scared me a lot more, you know, because I always thought I was invincible when I was daddy's little, little girl. And I would always, you know, make him happy and proud. So for me to be, uh, I'm, I'm a five-time rape survivor. Um, after my rapes, um, after I'd say the first three rapes, that I encountered, experienced, I uh, then had boyfriends that I pretty much allowed to treat me bad. And, I mean, I, I think that word allow is, is, is up for question because I, um, I don't think anybody goes into it saying, you, you know, you're, I'm, I'm allowing you to mistreat me and beat me and, and verbally and emotionally and spiritually defunct me, but that's what I was allowing to happen. And I, I think through, I know because of the rapes that I felt unworthy and I was not valuable. And I should be happy to have anybody around me that cares about me. That was pretty much the way I, I felt. I'd never identified it then, but I definitely do now. I started identifying how I felt when I found football. Football saved my life. You know, football is bigger to me than just a sport that most Americans love. Football saved my life. It was a sense of empowerment for me. So it was very odd for me to be taken advantage of to the outside world. But now that I think about it, it was simple. You know, I was easy prey for these guys that spoke to me and that, that I dated. You have just said something that you know for many um, rape victims um, – long before they even begin the process of survival. Actually, the process of survival begins when the rape concludes and they're still alive. And a lot of people don't pay attention to how close one actually is to death during the process of a rape. But the thing that you've said that, that is so frightening for so many is when you said five-time rape survivor. Because as you probably experienced... The first time you are assaulted, the, one of the overarching fears is, will this happen again? This can never happen again. I can't survive. I won't survive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, the, listen, I was, I was raped my freshman year when I was uh, at Tuskegee University. And I was always a tough little girl, pretty strong. Uh, I always knew what I wanted, and I went for it, you know, and I went for it with fervor and zeal. And so for my aunt's husband, by the way, my favorite aunt in the whole world, in fact, I'm named after her, uh, I looked up to her. She graduated from a big university. She was beautiful. She was classy. And I was, you know, her niece, and her husband raped me. And so that was... I think I think harder than being actually physically raped was the fact that she disowned me. You know, her words to me were, 
why would you lie and try to destroy my marriage? That cut me to the core. And I think I live with, I live with that still every day, you know, where you lose a piece of yourself because, you're, to me, my family was very close. We were, I thought we were. I, I thought we were. So for me, it was a lot harder than actually physically being raped. It was my family not supporting me. You know, so there's no way I can, I, I no longer go down south. My family, my mom's family is in Mobile, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And we went down there several times a year. And, you know, as a child, it was every summer we went down there for the entire summer. And going to grandma's house was like your second home. <laughs> I don't have that anymore. I do not have that. But for, for years, I still was very obedient to my family, you know, and you respect your elders. So you figure from the time I was 18 years old when I was raped by my aunt's husband and my family would still associate with my very rapist. If this was a guy in the street named John that nobody knew, they wouldn't be having dinner with him or telling him, hey, how you doing today? Right. But that's what was going on with me because this person was in the family. And, you know, that happens so so uh, For years I was very confused about this and so when he raped me again um i at that point i knew it was all my fault because i i shouldn't have gone back to my aunt's house in atlanta georgia and i realized that it wasn't my fault you know i i had a plan my plan was when i go back to see my aunt in atlanta you know i'm just gonna stick with her stay with her whenever she leaves the house i'm going with her i'm never gonna be left alone in the house with them and then, the, you know, I remember when I was there. Because I didn't tell her when it first happened. I was in shock. I was in shock. I didn't, I probably didn't tell myself that it had happened. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to hide it and deny it. And uh, <laughs> when I remember that second time, and I was begging her to let me come with her. I was saying, no, 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 I'm going to go with you to the office real quick. Don't leave me here. She goes, no, 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 I'll be right back. She made me stay. And... <laughs> Bam, there you go. You know, so that was really difficult. That was extremely difficult. And so, you know, you live with that for years. And and today, you know, when I speak to uh, young girls today and I speak to women, uh, a lot that have gone through some form of rape, molestation, or abuse from a man, I, you know, I let them know I know exactly how you feel. And it's not a good place to be in. But there's a way for us to reclaim our power. And and that's what it's about for me is to reclaim our power. Talk about reclaiming one's power when you have been so harmed so often, so profoundly by people you trust. I mean, we know that most rapes occur between people who know each other, which nobody likes to think about, but that's the truth. It is. It is, unfortunately, the truth. Um Listen, it took me it took me years. You figure from 18 to the age of 42. That's how long. So it took me most of my adult life, you know, the, the, the times when, in which I should have been so happy. It took, it took all that away from me. And when I found it, I was holding on to it. When I reclaimed my power, I was holding on to it. And it was such a beautiful feeling, you know. Something beautiful grew from all this ugliness, that I wanted to share, that I still want to, and I do continue to share with girls and women 
um, you know, about them finding their safe place. I got to tell you, there's nothing more beautiful in the world to get a random phone call on any given day from a woman that says, I was at your last speaking engagement and I had been beaten by my boyfriend that I lived with for years and today I left him. <laughs> That's powerful. That, you know, to hear somebody say thank you to me, who am I? I'm, a, I'm just like you. But to hear somebody tell me thank you, I know I'm doing something right. And I will keep opening up my big mouth about this, and I'm very transparent about it all. If that will help somebody else. You know, just as you were sharing with us the woman who just who called you, you know, it almost gives one chills to think about the power of one person's voice in one person's ear. And, and a lot of times, I think, particularly as women, we forget about that. Right. Yeah, we do. We, we do forget about that. I, you know, I know that I've always had a very energetic, if you can't tell already, an energetic <laughs> uh, way about myself. And I've had many people tell me, Colette, tone it down. Colette, stop. And so I might try to put a lid on myself throughout my years, throughout my life. And I don't do that anymore. I'm not going to dim my light for somebody else to be comfortable around me. I'm not doing that. Did it do, any, did it do me any good before? It did not. And did it do anybody else any good previously? It did not. I'm going to stay strong and stand tall in who I am. So let's just go back to the uh, abusive relationship you were in and, and talk, tell us a little bit about that. Wow, which, which relationship? <laughs> because there were many that were, uh, quite frankly, probably most of them were abusive. Um, I, I want to say the one that, that probably was the absolute worst was um, when I ended up leaving school, aborted me wanting to, uh, aborted me graduating from Tuskegee University. That clearly broke my heart. All I wanted to do was be a doctor of veterinary medicine and save the animals. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I get back to New York, and I feel defeated already because I, I defeated myself. And uh, I was dating a guy in Brooklyn, and he was a big, huge guy, six foot four, big guy, worked out, uh, pumping iron. And I thought that was pretty sexy, and he was pretty con- commanding in his presence, and he was very intelligent, and he was older than me. And I started dating him shortly found out that he was a drug dealer. And I wasn't quite sure, but there were always drugs around. And uh, at some point, you know, this guy finessing me, and I pretty much lived at his house, you know, and uh, he had other women, and I would complain about the other women. Like, what do you mean you have so-and-so calling here, and she's calling? Who's this Tina girl? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he would quickly let me know who she was by grabbing me by my throat and, and walking me around the house with my feet dangling in the air. Oh, my. And, uh, you know, went from that to, you know, him having company over. I would come home from work, and I may have walked into a conversation that they were having about one of his other women. And, of course, I would say something. And I remember one time in particular, he literally took both of his hands, grabbed each side of my business suit, and tore it off of me. Literally tore it off of my body while he had his friends over. 
Oh, Colette. And his friends didn't do anything. He said, hey, hey, stop. And he told them to shut up and sit down. And they did. And I'm sure he wasn't as polite about it as you just described. No, he wasn't. <laughs> and, and they listened. But he had, you know, he was the guy that was in control. He was a guy that would whoop you up. And his friends were obedient to him as well. And so this went on for a while. I, I think, I think the, the, I stayed for years. I was with them for years. You know, there'd be breakups and I would leave and go back to my parents' house. And then he might call and finesse me on the phone and tell me how sorry he was. <clears throat> It'll never happen again. And I would start believing him because I wanted to believe it. Of course. And I wanted to believe that somebody really cared about me. And so I would go back. And this little, you know, roller coaster ride was going on for years and years. And I, the very last time was when um, he was having a bad day for whatever reason it was. And he started smacking me in my face. And we're talking about a big man. And, uh, and I was getting angry. And so I would start cursing him out or fighting back. I'd say, don't touch me. And then he goes, oh, you're angry. Look at you. You're angry, huh? And he pulled out a big knife. And he goes, here. And he, he made me hold the knife in, in my hand. He forced the knife in my hand, and he would smack me again. The point was that he wanted me to try to stab him to, to protect myself. Hmm. I wouldn't stab him, so I just kept putting the knife down, telling him, stop. This is this is going way above the the normal range of you beating me, and so he goes, "Oh, I forgot, you're Colette. You want it all. You want it done big." So he goes and he gets a gun, okay. and he forced me to hold this gun in my hand, and he kept smacking me and smacking me and smacking me and smacking me, and once again he wanted me to cock that gun and fire. Uh, I didn't do that. And eventually he got tired of this charade, and he walked away. I run to the bathroom, still with the gun in my hand. And I sat, I locked the door, I sat on the commode, and I'm hysterical. And I looked at the gun, and I opened the, this was like a barrel. I mean, I'm not a gun person, but I opened it up, and there were no bullets in it. Interesting. So can you imagine yeah. At, at that very moment, all I was thinking was if I would have shot at him to protect myself, he He would have killed you. He would have killed he you. Would have killed, yeah. How dare you try to shoot me? <laughs> I mean, this, we're talking about sick. And that was the last straw for me, you know. And I remember calling up my dad, and um, I was always afraid to call my father because I wanted him to be proud of me, you know, like. I could take care of myself. And uh, my dad came by, the police were there, and of course I was frantic, and the police were, <laughs> let's say, not trying to get this guy, but they were trying to get me. Uh-huh. Because I was, I was screaming and crazy and hysterical. And, you know, so I wasn't controlled. You know, the police, when they spoke to him, he was just very calculated. Oh, yeah, she's out of her mind. Yeah, I did see this other girl the other day. She found out, and oh, she just lost her mind. Look at her. Look at her. She, look how out of control she is over there. And the police were trying to take me in. I believe you. And at that point, I thought, this 
this world is absolutely insane. And I want no parts of it. And I left. I got in my dad's car and, and I left. And I, you know, haven't been back since. Uh, you know, that was scary. And then, you know, after, after he and I dated, would you believe the next person I dated was a narcotics detective? Wow. Right. Was- and I remember that this guy abused me emotionally. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, this guy that I met, I remember him happened. He, I met him out one night. He called me the next day. And I was on my way to class. I was taking real estate classes at this time. And I remember him calling me, and he was asking me what I was doing. And I told him, and I said, well, I'm waiting for the bus to go back home. And he goes, well, you're waiting for the bus, so I'll come and pick you up. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, a guy's going to go out of his way to do something nice for me and pick me up? Oh, my God. So I was pretty much head over heels. Right then. Right then. And we started dating. And this guy was emotionally abusive to me. And it it was dastardly. It was from one extreme of being abused to a whole other level of being abused. The nice guy was abusing me verbally and emotionally. And, and I stayed with him for years, too. And, you, you know, one of the, the scariest things about emotional abuse is when you tell somebody that you're being abused, if you tell somebody, they're looking for scars. And yeah. if they don't see any scars, they're assuming it's all in your mind, you made it up, you're hysterical, who knows. But it's very yeah. hard to get support, healthy support, when you are the victim of emotional abuse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from, from, from little things that actually weren't that little. So when I would come visit him, he, would, he wouldn't let me in the door at first. He would look at me. He would glance me over. And then uh, he'd make me take off my shoes and my coat at the door. And he would wait until I did. And he would pretty much allow me to go into the bedroom. And um, <laughs> just little things. If he had, so he would come into the bedroom after me and sit down on his side of the bed, and he might be watching television. And I'm, you know, I'm coming in there happy to see him. And I'm like, oh, guess what I did today? Or guess what? He would, he would just look at me and say, shh, don't interrupt me. You see me watching television. So and, again, and that went on for. What so, you're <laughs> what you're saying is that repeatedly. You were in relationship uh, with people who hurt you physically and emotionally. And, you know, for those people who were listening, who were saying, well, why don't you, why don't you just leave? Um, first of all, you have to know that you can. Yeah. You have to know emotionally that you have a right to walk away from violent treatment, whether it's emotional or physical. And you, for many women, for many people, they have to believe that there is a possibility of a safer, uh, more secure existence without somebody in their lives who's abusing them. It took tremendous courage for you to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I didn't didn't realize that I had any options. I mean, I, I was just some girl that was looking for someone to love her up. And treat her right, and and good attention, or actually any attention was good attention for me at, at that particular time in my life. What did you your know? family say? Did they know that you were being abused in these various relationships? Yeah. So my father definitely knew, because um, whenever the first guy in Brooklyn that would physically abuse me, and I would be bruised, or I would come home, and you could definitely tell I had a rough night. And 
I would come in the door of my parents' house, and my dad would always be sitting in the same place, and you know, with the paper, watching the news or some television show, and I would just whisk by him, and I would get up the stairs, and my father would say to me, "So, how long do you think that uh, this is going to keep going on? Would you come in here limping, or see another bruise on you, and you tell me you fell again?" And, and, and I'm supposed to keep going for this or, or believing it. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, what are you talking about? I stopped. And uh, I said, they just leave me alone. I'm tired. He goes, yeah, you should be tired of him by now. Um, so I have a company that I started called Believe in You Incorporated. Believe in You Incorporated is uh, a way for me to give back to community, black youth and girls and women in particular, so I, I do a lot of speaking engagements. So I, I travel to schools, middle school, high schools. I do some elementary schools uh, as well, uh, university speaking engagements. It depends on what, if it's a middle school or a high school, the principal will, will let me know if he wants me just to come in to speak or if he wants me to speak and do a mini football camp. So I like to be able to have these girls in a room or – Black youth in particular, you know, all black youth, and uh, and have them do legitimate NFL football drills and workouts. That's great. And I get to tell them, guess what? Those guys you idolize on television where you think you could never be that, you just did exactly what they do because I coached for them. <laughs> you know, so it's giving them some inspiration, giving them some hope, Letting them know that they can defy the odds. You know, start. We have, we have to start. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Colette, how do people find out more about what you're doing? Uh, they can check me out I, I, on my Facebook page. I'm, I'm old school, so I mainly use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm on Facebook, and I'm also on LinkedIn under Colette V. Smith. Uh, I'm, I am on uh Twitter as well at Coco V E E twenty eight. Twenty eight is the number I wore when I played pro football. There you go. So Coco V E E twenty eight at Twitter, and they could find look me up on my website at um, believe in you Inc. dot com, and that's believe with the letter N and the word Y O U Inc. short for Incorporated. So believe in you Inc. dot com as well. Wonderful, Colette. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your really powerful story. Thank you. You're very welcome. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org. And be sure when you go to the home page to sign up for our weekly free giveaway. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 communications. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care.
Thank you.